So the lectionary reading this morning has us turning to the stories beginning um, about King Solomon. And I had never preached on King Solomon before, so I thought that this would be a good day to undertake turning to his life. And as I delved deeper and deeper into the scripture and into the commentaries, I realized it was for a very good reason that I had never preached on King Solomon before. So I invite you all to buckle up. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. So first of all, we need some background. King Solomon was the third king in a row for the Israelites. First, we had King Saul and then Solomon's father, King David, both very fraught characters. And, you know, they had this very classic, you know, the Greek tragedies, the hero has this rise to prominence and fame, and then what happens in the Greek tragedy? We just fall right off a cliff, right? There's this massive fall from grace. So this happened for both of the preceding kings, and this is the beginning of Solomon's rise to prominence. And we also have to go back even a little farther to understand what's going on here. If this sermon had a title in the bulletin, it would be Learning the Hard Way. So God didn't want the people to have a king in the first place, right? When God led the people from their enslavement in Egypt through the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years under the guidance of Moses and into the promised land, God had them stop at the base of Mount Sinai and established a covenant with these people, right? God gives them the Ten Commandments, and God says, if you will live in these ways. Remember last week we were talking about it, this uh, metaphor of a way? Live in this way. This is a good path to go. This is the right way to live. If you will just live this way, things will be good. And it isn't just a covenant between God and the people, but it's a social contract, right? If you aren't stealing from your neighbor and your neighbor's not stealing from you, things are going to go pretty well and you won't have a lot of problems, right? Very simple. But it wasn't so simple for the people, was it? Because when they got where they were going, they get to the promised land, all they have are these judges and they become jealous of these great nations around them who have kings. We should never look to our neighbors and think, oh, I need to have what my neighbor has, right? But they're doing this. They're thinking, okay, we need a strong, mighty, tall, handsome king who will lead us into victory in battle. We want someone we can brag about. We want what our neighbors have. And God initially wants to say to the people, no, no, you do not want a king. This is not a good way for you. We have our covenant. Just keep going this way. Things will be fine. But the people persist and God relents. The people want to learn this the hard way. And we know where this is going to end after king after king after king has this massive fall from grace. Eventually, they're going to be sent into exile. So we know this is not going to end well, but the people persist. They want a king. So they have had King Saul, King David, and now King Solomon. So it starts out pretty well for him. So let's turn to 1 Kings in the second chapter. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. That time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. And now I'm going to redact a very long passage from the lectionary, which I hope you haven't watched these shows. I'm not going to say whether or not I have. But they have a body count similar to Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, okay? Now Solomon is going to take care 
of all of his enemies through the help of some of his allies, okay? Very high body count. I'm not going to read it in worship. But the Bible says the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. I think what really happened here is we have writers, some trying to make the kings look better, look very good, and some trying to show what really happened. So someone's scribbling in here, and then somebody's redacting here and adding in a little bit over here. Some people want their heroes to look great, and some want to acknowledge they're human, just like the rest of us. But So the one who wanted us to see how human they were filled in those details. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house. Now, she is just going to be one of 700 wives, which Solomon is going to acquire for political alliances. Okay? So until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem... The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. So do you hear this continuing theme throughout the scriptures, walking in faithfulness? You have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this, your great people? Do you hear his sincerity of heart and his humility as he honestly comes before God and says, this task is so huge. What I really need, if you're going to give me anything, is the gift of wisdom and understanding mind. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies... But have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. So we're picking up with these themes. Walking in God's way. So God has been very, very clear with the people about what the right way is, right? God gives the Ten Commandments, God gives Moses legal code, and makes it pretty simple, pretty plain how the people are supposed to live. And God wants to be their primary leader, 
right? We say just as the same way Jesus is the head of the church, Jesus is the foundation of the church. God is the same way with the covenant people. God is their primary leader. They don't need a king. And so Solomon is given this wisdom, the wisdom like no one else will have before or after. And then later in the Bible, we will have, you know how the Psalms are attributed to David? Well, the Proverbs are attributed to Solomon. So these Proverbs, these little sayings that help people live a good life, that represent this knowledge that's handed on as it's learned from grandparents down to children, from teachers to students, is recorded as Proverbs, and they're these short little sayings. Um, I used to love this book, Life's Little Instruction Book. My parents had it on our coffee table when I was little. Did you all know that book? I don't know why I loved it, okay? It was written for middle-aged men in corporate America, and it had sayings like, how to make your boss look good, how to be your wife's best friend. I don't know why I used to read that book by the hour, but there were a few things that I did like, like plant a tree on your birthday, Um, don't expect money to bring you happiness, Never take action when you're angry. Never cut what can be untied. So there are some good things in there. But Proverbs is a little bit like this. And I wonder what things you would add if you went to your um, family members and said, now what was it that grandma was always saying? What, was, what are those family sayings that we have? And they can be very cultural. A great way to get to know another culture before you go to visit is to learn their Proverbs. But there is this fundamental flaw in us that it doesn't work, right? Just like we were talking last week about the toddler who just wants to veer off onto the path. They, we just have this inability, most of us, to listen to the wisdom of other people and to just take it in and follow it. We insist on learning things the hard way. So one example from my own life, as I must have said a hundred times this summer, we don't scooter barefoot to my kids. We don't scooter barefoot. Put shoes on before you get on your scooter. Did they? No. It wasn't until somebody decided to go down the driveway, which is a pretty steep incline, barefoot, and then use a barefoot as a brake to stop that they realized why we don't scooter barefoot, right? And God is like this parent who cares about us. The rules aren't arbitrary. They're for a very good reason. We don't scooter barefoot because God doesn't want to see us fall down and be bleeding, right? God cares about us. So these Proverbs are supposed to help us live in a good way. But they don't really, they don't really help because we're stubborn. So the people wanted to, had to learn this. We don't, you don't really need kings the hard way. And we see the young people in our lives growing up, not listening to the advice of their elders. And we make the same mistakes over and over again. So... What God sort of gives us instead, what we have in the Bible instead, is we complexify this idea in in the later books. So we have Ecclesiastes and we have Job. Because I think the reason it doesn't work is because of these questions we can't answer. Well, I do know somebody who lived a really good life, and look what happened to them. Or I know somebody who's living a really terrible life, and look how great they have it, right? It actually isn't always that simple, and God knows this. So in these other wisdom books, we wrestle with the question like Job, well, why do bad things happen to good people, right? 
And in Ecclesiastes, it's a little bit more hopeless. There's a time for everything, right? There's a time to be born and a time to die. And it keeps coming back to this theme of it's all vapor, right? What's the point anyway? Even if I lived the very best life I could live, what really is the point in the end? So God wrestles alongside us through the Bible, through these words in Scripture with these stories. And what we have instead, because the Proverbs don't always help, is this wisdom woman who we encounter. We will hear her sung about right after the sermon, and the words are in your bulletin. But we also encounter her in the book of Proverbs, not with her little pithy sayings, but as this expression of God's divine wisdom. So she is God's wisdom personified. She sings, I was there when God created the heavens and the earth. She is this facet of one of God's attributes. She is wisdom itself described as a woman. And in the book of Proverbs, it says in chapter 8, does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice? She's standing up on a high place beside the road, the good road, and she's inviting you to come up and see what, what this good way is. And it says that she's like this. She has, in chapter 9, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servant girls. She calls from the highest places in the town. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity. That sounds to me like we could say it as grow up, right? Lay aside immaturity. Grow up and live and walk in the way of insight. So if these little sayings don't work, what about God personified or God's wisdom personified as this woman? Maybe she has beautiful silver streaks in her hair and she has all the wisdom, but what she's offering you isn't just the sayings, it's her own presence. The people had this understanding that it was God's wisdom working through you when you were doing something right. So if you had perfected your craft, whatever it was, whether it was preparing a meal or making a painting or singing a song or balancing a budget or running a company, whatever it is that you are doing really well, that's God's wisdom personified as working alongside you and through you in the same way God orders creation. So she's inviting everyone into her table. And this house with seven pillars and a table with bread and wine, the seven pillars are showing that it's a very large mansion. And what does this remind you of? There is this mansion with room enough for you, and you were invited to come to this table where there will be bread and wine. And so our last passage for today comes from the Gospel of John. And you know we have Jesus saying all of these I am statements. I am the way, right? Not just walk on that way, but I am the way. And him, Jesus saying, follow me. Not just go down that path and best of luck, but I'm going down this path and you can come along with me, so I will go alongside you. And one of these I am statements is in our reading for today. And it's not the Last Supper in this moment. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And then he says to his friends, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he says to them later, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. This welcome is open for everyone. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So how do we learn? We don't learn from advice, right? We don't learn from sayings that are written down. It would be so nice if we could, right? So simple. We learn partly from tapping into that divine gift of God that is wisdom. Imagine that wisdom woman, as you make your choices, standing beside you, inviting you to go in the right way because she's embodying what it means. But then beyond that, that's still not really how we learn. We learn by doing. That's why we have to make our own mistakes so much of the time. We learn by making mistakes, but we learn by doing. I imagine a surgeon teaching a resident how to do something, right? You don't learn it from a textbook. You learn by doing it together and then having someone stand over your shoulder and coach you as you do it yourself. And then after you've done it yourself thousands of times, you're ready to teach someone else how it is that you do it by showing them how they can do it. Jesus is like this. Jesus comes to be with us, alongside us, to walk the way before us and with us. That is the only way we can learn what it means to be wise and to be a disciple. So just as last week we talked about God wanting to pick us up like little toddlers on the way, Jesus is the brother who goes alongside us, taking our hand and saying, come, follow me, accompany me, go beside me. This is the right way that we should live. Jesus shows us through living it out. Thanks be to God.